Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of the Leider Security and Global Affairs podcast. Um, I'm your host, as always, Jake. Today with me, I have two former colleagues and good friends of mine. Um, to my left, I have Jen Dowling. Jen, if you could introduce yourself. Indeed. Thanks for having me, Jake. So for those that don't know me over the airwaves, my name is Jennifer Dowling. I'm a PhD candidate in the Terrorism and Political Violence Research Group here at the Institute of Security and Global Affairs. And today we're going to have a great discussion with myself and I'll hand it over to the person to my left, which is Ramesh. Hi, thanks for having me. And my name is Ramesh Gonaharity and I am a PhD researcher based at Dublin City University. And my area focuses on citizenship, sovereignty, uh, borders, and the post-Soviet space primarily. Very interesting. Thank you very much for um, joining me today um, with your precious summertime um, to sit in this very echoey and a little bit hot room um, in Leida, in Weinhafer, um, to discuss, um, well, let's start with uh, the blog post that you posted a couple of months ago. Uh, Jen, the blog yes. post on Northern Ireland. Yeah, so for those interested, um, on the Institute of Security and Global Affairs blog page, I wrote on the current spate of violence in Northern Ireland, um, titled Leaving Our Troubles Behind. So for those interested, we can link it here. Basically, what it wanted to address was the recent upstick in violence that had happened in Northern Ireland in April. Um, many international commentators saw this and thought this is a return to the violence we once were all too familiar with in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And a question that kept popping up and that provoked me to write something on it was asking, will this really see a return to the scale of violence that we saw during the Troubles? And in the blog, I kind of address these questions three parts. So we talk about in the wake of these riots, is it likely to see a return to violence? Mm -hmm. And what I argue is that what happened on the streets of Derry and Belfast predominantly wasn't something that happened overnight. Instead, it was really a culmination of the fallout of Brexit, which upset many and lacked a lot of foresight. And so it wasn't an overnight escalation, so to say. And many also spoke out about their disagreement with the handling of it, such as the Loyalist Community Councils, who recently also spoke out and said that they would reject the Good Friday Agreement in light of this mishandling and broken promises as well as a backdrop of political turmoil between the power-sharing agreement that is in Stormont. So this is broadly what we started to cover and how we're sitting here today, because we're interested in talking about what the fate of Northern Ireland will look like, but also how this relates to bigger questions in talking about borders, security, and uncertainty, I think, in this post-Brexit era, but also in post-COVID era. Yes. Um, so, yeah, hopefully we can touch on some of these topics today. Yes, um, absolutely. That's um, beautifully done, I must say. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. Done my job for me there. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, really quickly to talk a bit more about your blog, you, you mentioned that um, this was an uptick in violence around April. Um, has this been a consistent um, uh, spat of violence since then, or has it since died down, would you say? 
It's since died down, so what we saw at the start of April was an escalation. You know, buses set alight and the scenes you were seeing could have been something from what we were too familiar with. So it's not to say it's gone away. I think there's also a lot of looming tensions that are present within communities in light of the uncertainty of the political situation. The fate of unionism at the moment is also exposing some cracks and they have their own issues here. So although the violence on the streets might be less reported and known, I think it's not to say that things Mm. have gone away or that... yeah these tensions have maybe decimated or yeah and indeed the um would it be disregard or um official uh, denunciation of the good friday agreement uh, and by consequence the peace process perhaps suggests um yeah uh, a long uh, uphill struggle to get uh, these voices back on the table Yeah, and I think also in reading headlines about it and this idea that the Good Friday Agreement has been rejected, we also need to remember that not everyone agreed with it in the signing of this agreement, although it's in the term agreement. (laughs) um, Getting everyone to the table was a very tumultuous event in that, you know, one side didn't want the other side present and vice versa. So they really, you know, came a long way getting both sides of the party at the same table. So I think the the idea that people reject it isn't a new one. Mm. I think not everyone did accept it. You had factions within the Republican movement that rejected it. And the same on the unionist perspective. So I don't like to think that it will be thrown out and it has lasted the, the pace of time for a reason. Indeed. And I also think the power of these international influences in maintaining it because it's really seen as a internationally as this blueprint of how peace works and so there's a lot of interest as we've seen in Biden's campaign in the US in citing the Good Friday Agreement quite often to maintain it and there is this at least public you know commitment to maintaining it whether in practice policymakers are doing all they can to do so, that I'm not sure about. Mm. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, this brings kind of to take it to the more broader picture, the question of whether peace agreements in general, the question of do they solve something mm. or they actually entrench something and then they freeze the status quo at that point of time, whatever the year it was agreed on. And I was recently reading another blog post uh, on the situation in uh, northern Cyprus, mm. where there the argument was, yes, indeed, peacekeepers did bring peace. Of course, in Northern Ireland, we don't have peacekeepers as such. But the fact that with this international involvement, which di- was also there in the Good Friday Agreement, that it did kind of freeze that thing, so it yeah. solved the armed conflict. A negative peace, right? Lack defi- of hostilities. Exactly. Yeah. You definitely achieved this negative peace, but you nonetheless entrenched this status quo. And thus, as a result, you don't really take the steps, necessary steps to solve it and neutralize it fully. And to have this, again, if you use the term positive peace, if you want to use that. But so that's kind of an issue that comes with peace agreements. It doesn't solve 
everything. No, and I think that also brings to today's headlines, which makes it more relevant in that you really have this dark history looming. And I like how you said freeze, because it really does freeze everything at a point in time. But in practice, it's never going to solve everything. And the headlines I was referring to was the legacy of the troubles. So new legislation being drafted by the British and Irish governments looking at how to prosecute for the past. So there is an argument in in light of um, Bloody Sunday. So there was a trial last Friday. The trial basically let off um, one of these high profile cases of Bloody Sunday, which was Soldier F. So that basically on the grounds of lack of evidence, there would be no prosecution for this soldier. And of course, this has sparked upset and outrage for victims and victims' families, of course, because of, there is an argument that you can't prosecute for what has happened. Often there isn't the evidence there, but withholding them the ability to seek out that justice for what has happened in the past is the issue. Yeah, or even to um, attempt uh, reconciliation between uh, different communities with very different perceptions of both the conflict, the status quo, and where it should be going. Yeah. Um, yeah, this idea of a peace treaty and just, well, this is the status quo now, let's not talk about it. Um, exactly. Yeah, does nothing other than just to yeah, freeze and entrench uh, sentiments. And so this is one of the, the biggest groups kind of lobbying for history of the troubles to be told which is called the wave group and they've said you know even if you allow veterans to be off the hook of crimes committed in the past the same will go for paramilitaries so there's also that issue that for victims veterans families that this also doesn't rest well because it means that those that took the lives of their families also so there's there isn't any perfect solution, but it is, it's kind of, again, brought up this dark unfreezing, going back to the freezing of these issues that you park for the moment, but then as the years unfold, there are still cracks. There's still um, dissatisfaction there, which um, has not been addressed and has been sort of institutionally ignored um, for a convenient uh, silence. You know, almost like an awkward uh, dinner party where nobody speaks. <laughs> Just, well, move on. <laughs> um, it's very interesting that we're now using the um, terminology, the, the, the phrases we would often reserve for more um, post-Soviet spaces, like the idea of a frozen conflict zone. You would expect that to be used in like Transnistria or like Abkhazia, but you could very clearly apply that to situations um, inside of Western Europe and indeed inside of um, the celtic isles or the the british isles regardless of uh, how you perceive it um yeah so it's um important to uh calls it like you sees it i suppose and this is indeed a, a frozen conflict still yeah and also kind of using the term frozen conflict maybe some of our listeners will not be happy with that term because also it's not really frozen things are happening mm. i mean economically it has developed Culturally, socially, it has developed. Things have happened. So it's not necessarily frozen in the terms of nothing has changed. But I guess when we use it in the terms, it's more in relation to from the more peace building side or dynamic that it has kind of frozen off things from at 98 
some things have developed, of course. Mm. But yeah, and I think that actually touches on something that I mentioned in the blog post as well, in that it almost reporting on it in that it's something that would just unfreeze overnight and erupt into full-scale conflict really undermines the tremendous progress that's been made across both communities. Amazing on-the-ground organizations that are working with former prisoners, with communities, with families, all affected by the conflict. So to say or to kind of indicate that it would just return in a flick of a switch also really undermines the progress that has been made. So I think exactly Ramesh touched on it there. Although you're never going to be free of all the baggage that comes with it. You are perhaps doing a disservice to the actors and the communities uh, that have uh, attempted tirelessly to change the conditions of Northern Ireland post uh, the Troubles. Um, exactly. Right, yeah. Uh, I actually wanted to zoom in now on an uh, observation that Ramesh made prior to the recording of this podcast in the run-up to it um, about the importance of recognition between two um, conflicting sides uh, in the negotiation of a peace deal. Um, Ramesh, could you explain what you meant by that? If recognition is something... Uh, not so often uh, seen in these sorts of conflicts. How typically are these negotiations done? Who comes to the table? It's either that they, are, they come as individuals, for example, uh, for the Abkhazia, Georgia, South Ossetian conflict with the every day, uh, every year there are the talks um, happening in Switzerland where they come as individuals and not as necessarily representatives of a certain political entity. So that's kind of the fact that recognition is an important part and has played a very crucial part with regards to the Northern Irish case. And thus, it may even simplify things like relating to the post-Brexit border issues, uh, cross-border movement of goods, of persons, the fact that you already have two existing polities or if you want to add the EU to it, or a number of polities that do recognize each other makes things maybe a bit simpler to actually even debate and discuss certain issues. Yeah, that's true. Recognition is um, an important um, step, as you mentioned, to um, advancing dialogue on um, perhaps not solving this conflict, but at least trying to become to a productive status quo. Speaking of recognition, Jen, who are the recognized parties or stakeholders in uh, the current um, issue regarding Northern Ireland? So for most of our listeners, they're probably already up to speed with who is involved in the Northern Ireland context. But in case you're not, so post Good Friday Agreement, which was the agreement that brought an end to the 30 year conflict in Northern Ireland in its signing in 1998, where parties on behalf of the British government, Irish government, and a newly established power-sharing government in Northern Ireland, in Stormont, was established. So within Stormont, you have a power-sharing agreement, which is between nationalist and unionist. So nationalist being represented by the Republican Party, Sinn Féin, they have always lobbied for a united Ireland. So their ultimate vision is political, economic, cultural unity with the rest of Ireland. 
And on the other hand, you have unionists who, in the name goes, want to maintain the union with the United Kingdom. So these are kind of the main parties we're talking about. And on the unionist side, you probably are familiar from news excerpts from Brexit of the Democratic Unionist Party. So they would be the biggest standing party at the moment representing the unionists. Um, and of course, discussions and negotiations around that were of um, identity, um, citizenship, what um, the people who are being governed by this authority in Northern Ireland consider themselves. And that was a huge part of the Good Friday Agreement, right, Jen, where um, citizens of Northern Ireland um, could uh, be recognised as um, Irish, um, British, or indeed both, I believe, as yeah, well. Yeah, so I guess that touches on Ramesh's expertise here on citizenship, but that was indeed the case. So post-Good Friday, you're entitled to an Irish passport, a British passport, or both passports is the case. So it maybe made things easier in that you're entitled to both. Um, it also raised a lot of questions about how people identify themselves. So that's something I can speak for everyone on because some might identify as British, some Northern Irish, some sure. Irish. Yeah. Um, so it's a tricky one in that, again, it doesn't solve this, but the most important thing is that it allows individuals to decide where they identify and that they are recognised as they wish to identify. So again, this is why identity never ideologically you know it's always present and it should be um but it does then when things related to borders and the fate post brexit rise their head it's it poses these questions of something that threatens someone's identity or maybe they see it as a a booster to another identity so this is kind of the ideological battle post brexit is that Unionists feel that it threatens it in that they're taking an economic step towards unification with Ireland, whereas nationalists may see it as an opportunity to strengthen linkages with the Republic. So this is the ongoing struggle with the, the border identity issues and how they've been risen their heads again post-Brexit. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and of course at that time that was a very pragmatic way to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland um, by having this um, not only ability to choose your uh, citizenship, but also to have a common travel area between uh, the UK and Ireland. Yeah, indeed. I mean, looking at the question of citizenship, what happened um, a couple of years ago with this whole Brexit debate coming up was, maybe some of our listeners know it, but it was the case of uh, the dissolve the Zoiza case, which um, which uh, related to people born in Northern Ireland being able to choose whether they're British, Irish, or both uh, in terms of nationality, in terms of passport. However, and then what this individual wanted to was to get settler rights for her non-EU partner. Uh, however, and she applied with Irish documents because she has always had an Irish passport. However, the Home Office rejected the application, claiming that, well, you are British to us, even though, by effect, she never accepted a British passport. She never accepted this British part of the legal right to be a British citizen. She never actually accepted it. So in a way, the Home Office forced 
this legal status upon hand, of course, this went into immigration tribunals and courts of appeals, etc. And in the end, what happened was actually the the applicant lost the case. So the Home Office won in in the sense that well. The, the argument was, well, the Home Office is right to judge all people born in Northern Ireland as British citizens. So what the Home Office solution was, well, if, you're, if you don't consider yourself a British national, a British citizen, you have to renounce your British citizenship and pay £370 for it, basically. However, of course, in l sometime last year, they um, simplified it in a way that uh, both now currently both British and Irish nationals living in Northern Ireland or who have been living in Northern Ireland are considered as EU nationals or were considered uh, EU nationals until uh, the settler status was being um, applied. And thus, however, it did not really solve this issue going to the question of identity. It did not really solve this issue of who are Northern Irish people because according to the Home Office, which uh, their this argument is well, basically the Good Friday Agreement, that clause about citizenship, it's actually nothing to do with citizenship. It's only to do with identity. So you can choose to be, you can choose to feel Irish, or you can choose to feel British, or you can choose to feel both, yeah. but legally you are British. Mm -hmm. And so that does not, while Ireland has updated its citizenship laws post uh, Good Friday, the UK has not. So again, that is also a problem that exists that's not being really addressed. It has kind of been swept under the carpet because uh, the solution to the issues arising out of Brexit have been solved, but by and large, the greater problem of citizenship identity has really not been solved either because the UK has not amended its legislation. It's, it's very interesting, um, the amount of complications and issues that borders bring up. Um, what are, uh, in that case, borders? Um, what do they mean? I mean, that's a very good question, right? It, it really depends on, of course, who you're asking and then what Jen kind of brought about that identity in terms of group identity um, and, of course, by extension, individual identity and borders... Uh, what we imagine lines on a map do not overlap. And it's very difficult to find that kind of one-on-one -on -one overlap between the people and the state or the border uh, that represents a particular state or political entity as such. And I guess you should come from this point wh what a border means. And of course, also in literature, right, there's been the idea that a border is not just a line on a map. And rather it is more of a zone where whether that zone is 10 meters long or whether that zone is 200 miles long, uh, in, inland. I mean, that depends, for example, in, in the US, right? So we know we have the line on a map for, between the US and uh, Mexico. Mexico. However, immigration officials have the right to detain you uh, within 200 kilometers or 200 miles of, mm. of the US, US border. border. So in that sense, this one line on a map extends to um, a zone. And then again, 
that overlapping of zones of where does this Irish border or the of what it means to be Irish, where does that border extend? And there's this overlap again, as Jan was just mentioning. Yeah, it's a continuum rather than like, a, or even a, at this point in Northern Ireland, very much a puzzle piece rather than just like a distinct stop. And you are now in Northern Ireland where Northern Irish people live. You know, there's very um, grey area. Yeah, and there. I think that grey area has been exacerbated since the border, physical border, disappeared. So I remember mm. when I was younger driving past, having the physical border and you could not recognise it. Now you recognise it because your phone signal changes from one network to another. But then, you know, that you had the army border checks and it was a visible recognition of your entering somewhere else and you see flags which are still present to remind still you well, of it yeah. but there is something to be said about the physical and then the removal of the physical and how that actually poses even more challenges to solidify that uniqueness or zone area and i'm just thinking off the top of my head so what is what are some of these issues you now the fact that you now brexit has happened right and then the question of a board has come up plenty what is what is happening now in 2021 in relation to that dimension yeah so the biggest talking point is the economic fallout so of course all these issues we've spoken about to date about identity and uncertainty and political standoffs because there is no agreement being met but the real fallout is the economic repercussions so what will it mean and this was probably the biggest lack of foresight of the whole brexit campaign was that this idea that it would be fine we would find a technical fix to this border and that goods would flow from one to the next and there wouldn't be this issue. And even when it comes to free movement of people, which I believe there's agreements being met on, um, but having said that, economically, it posed a huge puzzle. That was the sticking point of the negotiations that we all had to bear witness to for a long time. So I think economically, this was the issue, was where the border goes. Should it be in the middle of the Irish Sea? Should it be on the land? Where will it go? And I guess the other question is, why would there need to be a border? And practically, I'm sure, again, a lot of our listeners are aware of this, but without a border, how would they check goods coming from the EU? So because the North shares a land border with the Republic, how would that fall out in terms of how you would make sure that it wouldn't be a free-for-all if one part of the country is part of a free market and the other isn't? Yeah, because what could potentially happen if there is really no control or as such Northern Ireland could become in a way a quasi condominium type of entity where yes, judicially, legally, it is part of the United Kingdom. However, with all these different aspects of where EU law is applicable, where citizenship rights are applicable, so that's Irish law, EU law, so it kind of does this condominium-like nature seeming to happen in Northern Ireland where different sovereignties over different things are beginning to overlap. Mm. 
Yeah, and perhaps de facto where one legal system dominates over another And as well. for the moment, I believe most of these kind of issues have been resolved in that Northern Ireland remains, of course, part of the United Kingdom system for all of these matters. And I think the most challenging was this economic flow of goods and livestock in a in an area where agriculture is their biggest export and most important industry. Things like veterinary checks and movement of cold meats that aren't frozen. This has been the sausage war debacle that has polluted headlines again. So and beef. Yeah, so I think it's really this economic fallout is the biggest repercussion of it because most of the others, at least for the moment, seem to be resolved in that Northern Ireland remains part of the bigger systems, but yeah. within the common travel area. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's it's kind of ironic that again, what was this low hang once was the low hanging fruit of economic issues was which was quite relatively easy to solve when uh, the UK was part of the EU, also plus the common travel area, plus uh, the open border. But now again, it's the economic issues that have come to the forefront, which were this relatively quote-unquote easy things to solve yeah and which some consider to be like the forerunners of a more substantial piece as well to have uh, trade between two former rivals or two um, contesting uh, actors and um, to start with the business um, would be uh, an indicator that things are cooling off and now they're one of the most con- <laughs> one of the biggest uh, concerns for yeah. the island and over the fix or the solutions, we mentioned this technical fix or technological. And Ramesh and I spoke about this in that if these solutions existed, we would probably see them on a lot of contentious border situations around the world. So this was often relied on in the debate that it's fine, technology will fix it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not just I don't know printing a QR code and uh, putting it on a package. It's It's much more complex and complicated than that it's it's not as easy i mean there's of course you need the whole infrastructure behind it which doesn't really exist and also do you really want this infrastructure from a point of uh data protection protection, privacy but also from a point of view of encroachment by the state Mm -hmm. so do you really need or you want these technological things implemented in your daily life where you have to wherever you go you have to for example scan a qr code or provide a qr code yeah which before covid19 would have been like a much more like yeah uh strong debate but now we see of course that um not to get all anti-mask or anything on this but you know we do see this encroachment in times of um emergency in times of necessity um so perhaps this is just one more drop in the drop in the bucket, perhaps. You know, a technocratic solution where you um, drive a truck across um, a certain line uh, on you know in Northern Ireland, and then all of a sudden you get a little text saying you have now entered the United Kingdom. Please pull over for a customs check or something at this uh, junction. And perhaps you know? COVID has also made us more accepting of giving away our information. Yeah. If we think of the Corona Melder app here, or yes. you know, there's the one classic. in every country now, but at the end of the day, you know, you are, that was the biggest debate surrounding them. And I think most are in agreement if it helps safety or it helps improve 
awareness of how it spreads, we're all willing to cooperate. So it is an interesting one of maybe we have talked about this two years ago would have been a difficult or different discussion. Yeah. And then if this is um, the beginning of further encroachment onto, um, yeah, of uh, privacy and data protection, um, what um, what does that mean for intra-European cooperation as well? Um, which, um, as the former executive director of um, Europol once said, um, Rob Wainwright, um, who's of course British and no longer part of Europol, haha, um, the um, the um, intelligence sharing that um, Europeans currently um, depend on each other for, currently trust each other with, is still relatively quite minimal. They're still relying a lot more bilaterally on the work of um, the US with the NSA, the FBI, and uh, in some cases the CIA, um, which yeah poses a lot of challenge for, okay, we now have perhaps a necessity to share this information with partners um, inside and outside of the European Union. Um, is this a, a possibility for the future to have a, a giant grid of, um, yeah, borderless but monitored crossings in Europe? Well, I think almost things like Brexit have demonstrated the opposite of that in that we've seen, so in this idea of, opening and sharing information in a much broader network almost what we've seen is a retreat to more closure in that brexit is exactly that that the united kingdom wishes to handle its own affairs and it is withdrawing from a lot of these definitely beneficial agreements multilateral which exist european-wide yeah and even a questioning of um previously considered you know um, equal partners, uh, as is the case with Hungary, right, where um, current Prime Minister of the Netherlands said that the Hungary has no place in the EU anymore um, due to its uh, legislation on LGBTQ rights, um, against LGBTQ rights, excuse me, um, and also for its um, spats of you know what they claim to be authoritarianism and um, media control. Um, so, yeah, perhaps this is a sign of the future that um, there is more data to be collected but then the sharing or the cooperating of which the utilization of which is um just yeah not being used and also i think speaking of borders it also depends a border for what in terms of is it are we open to economics and trade and are liberal in that sense but closed off in everything else like migration and people so i think largely when in 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 society, when we talk about borders or migration or economic things associated with this issue, we kind of clump it all together, yeah. but rather you need to separate the the liberal as or the neoliberal aspect economic aspects mm-hmm. versus the other aspects which may not uh, be aligned in the traditional sense anymore and that and that is maybe the norm and that's is what will happen over the years where nations will be still interconnected technologically, economically. However, they will be, or they would like to remain in control exactly who and what also comes across uh, their borders. Yeah. And what information they have of them, they're not willing to share. Yeah. And of course, this is what the UK was trying to do with Brexit, right? It was trying to have um, the the cake of um, trade, free trade, 
tariff-free trade um, without the um, obligations for recognizing that um, workers, um, services, um, capital less so, um, can you know, also enter along with those goods. And that's what the EU has always tried to do, is clump them together and say one must come with all the rest. Um, is that now, yeah, well, we now retreating to a sort of cold pragmatism but with a very sort of nationalistic, potentially xenophobic um, approach to border control. And I think on a more positive note, because I think we're going down the usual doom and gloom, um, I think Brexit has also exposed that it's not a blueprint that works overnight. I think it has strained relations across Europe in terms of patience of, you know, having such a prolonged negotiation when other extremely pressing economic and political crises were also unfolding. So I think it's also on a more positive yeah, note showed us that this withdrawal or withtre- retreat is not, it's painless. not painless and it's not a gold bullet solution for the demands that were wanted. And Northern Ireland is the case point of that in that, that. a simple solution to bordering was not found and it's still causing issues and they're still needing delays to full implementation of the Brexit protocol. And kind of slightly kind of doing a comp- more of a comparative case in a way the opposite to an extent would be maybe the case of Cyprus where we see where officially, legally, according to the European Union, Northern Cyprus is part of the Republic of Cyprus. However, the Republic of Cyprus does not have effective control over that territory, does not grant citizenship, or at least it restricts the granting of citizenship to people who would otherwise be considered as EU nationals. And also, Northern Cyprus has an open border or more or less open border with Turkey, which is not part of the EU. And then, but then also, of course, there is the Green Line, which is relatively, in the last decade or so, uh, has opened up substantially. And thus, in a way, what I see is that the case of Northern Ireland is kind of the opposite the mirror opposite, but the same issues do arise. So maybe that's something we can learn from the case of Cyprus and how things are handled there. So I think what we can maybe learn is that um, from the case of Northern Cyprus, from the case of Cyprus, because they may have, and they do have some issues which are similar in terms of movement of people and also, of course, economics and trade and the like, how does this, the different overlap of the legal versus the effective kind of control, the practicality on a daily basis, the pragmatic nature of it. And maybe that's something we can think about when we look at the case of Northern Ireland as well in a post-Brexit world. Yeah, indeed. Are there um, actors who are purely pragmatic in this case? Um, we, We discussed a lot about identity and citizenship but um, eventually there comes to a point where these sort of issues melt away when compared to the much greater um, concern immediate concern of where am I going to get a job how am I going to pay 
you know, for my family, how, you know, I used to work in Ireland and if there's a hard border, I have to go through a border check or I have to work, you know, get for a visa. That's not pragmatic. That's not practical. Yeah. Right. And I think that's something that maybe obscures the reality of what's happening in Northern Ireland, that we get so caught up in this, these divisive debates about identity, political turmoil, paramilitaries, gang mm. violence, all of this, that it almost neglects all the other needs that the that it needs in terms of job certainty very high emigration rates and at the end of the day people's real concerns lie in whether their families have yeah. future prospects there and the millions of people who are like not so invested in this concern and much more in like yeah i want to go to dublin to work please you know? and <laughs> i think what's as. interesting and telling is that the outcome of the Brexit referendum was that Northern Ireland voted with a majority to stay in the European Union. So I think they were all too aware of the intricacies and difficulties of finding solutions in this post-Brexit era. However, they weren't considered before. Yeah, it's 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 kind of ironic in a in the sense that I feel like the British, but also, I mean, Europeans uh, in general have forgotten what it is like to have a border. I mean, of course, since the Treaty of Maastricht, but even from before, which things have been becoming simplified, I mean, for the last 30 years, there has really been no border or freedom of movement. It was a very important thing. And with Brexit coming in, I think people have got that stark realization and that yeah we have to get a visa we have to get a work permit while mm. in a way the rest of the world that's the that's the reality, the reality. Yeah. in the majority of the world's countries there is no thing uh, no such thing called what we call inter-citizenship where you kind of have the citizenship of multiple entities at the same time so in the if you're in the eu you are technically a citizen broadly speaking, of 27 nations um, in, in, that, in that you can participate, you can work, you can live, or even though you may not have the passport of that uh, polity, but the passport is not really important in, in the EU as long as you are a national of an EU state. It doesn't matter what EU state it is. So while in the rest of the world, this piece of paper is the most important thing and it restricts you and in a way imprisons you yeah. within yeah. those borders. And some of those borders, of course, are colonial borders mm, that uh, have been put upon us. Uh, thus, yeah. that's also problematic. And I guess it's a good refresher, I feel like, for the EU and the UK to remember what it is like to have a border, what it is like to have to apply for a visa six months ahead of travel. Yeah, it's a rude awakening. And I think that's something in your research, Ramesh, that you've spoken about before in terms of the privilege of passports. And it's something I definitely have taken for granted over the years until I hear stories that you share on, you know, the difficulties that it, fa you know, that it poses. Yeah, indeed. I mean, that's, in a way, if you look at, just compare at the UK, so now the UK's quality of nationality dropped like w considerably, considerably and you, there's this quality of nationality index which does great work and in comparison but again post-Brexit because 
the EU is closed, the quality of the British nationality has dropped significantly, at least the external dimension of it. And thus, it's also something that we don't realize when we live in Western Europe that you are living and we are living in a certain way, in a privileged sense, because the passports that we have or the residence permits that we have provide this access to security, safety, higher economic output, etc. Although I must say the privilege still continues um, because the process um, for applying for a residence permit was uh, very bespoke, very easy, but it also uh, granted me with, um, by law, the same rights as a Dutch citizen. Um, and regardless of economic output, guaranteed for up to five years, um, provided I don't take too much out of uh, social security, um, yeah, I can keep working until I get a permanent residence or if I want to apply for citizenship. So even then, our privilege still continues on as an echo, you know, compared to other third country nationals who absolutely do not have this opportunity. And this idea of fluid borders today, and that I think that's something we've spoken about extensively in that, you know, realistically, we're living in an era where movement between countries is very easy if you live in Europe. And in Northern Ireland now, this... Yes, good point, Jen. If you, li- the, if, if you live in Europe, yeah, that's a very important Yeah, that's a good, yeah. good asterisk. Yeah, it's very easy. Unless, and so yeah. this idea of a border being on a sea border, I guess, appealed on paper to a lot because practically it doesn't result in... It's the least worst option. Exactly. Right? However, yeah. in saying that, like we've spoken about the sea border in itself really angered the Loyalist Community Council and the Unionists because they see it, as I said earlier, as a step towards a more economically unified Ireland as an island, which, of course, does not align with what they want post-Brexit. So it is, it's almost not as straightforward as land borders and redrawing borders it's also where you put the border, whether it be in the middle of the sea or not, it still has repercussions for the people that are living there. There's even discussion now in the UK of further secessionism, right? There's the resurgence of the Scottish referendum discussion, which has been you know, hotly discussed since the announcement of the Brexit referendum result. Um, but also on a more uh, micro level, there's been uh, discussions of, well, why don't we have the city of London as um, a territory and, 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 and an authority inside of the EU with the rest of the country or the rest of England outside of it. Um, there's now talks of um, Wales seceding from the Union um, and indeed even the north of England into Northumbria, which is, yeah, in, in and of itself splitting England into half. Um, yeah, these parties, these regionalist parties and, um, yeah, secessionist parties um, have seen not amazing electoral success by any means, um, but they have seen a lot more um, discussion and discourse um, in both the media, in social media, and also yeah, just in terms of you know, what, what the future of the United Kingdom, if it is united at all, uh, is, right? Yeah, and ultimately what, the, what you just, the examples you gave kind of show that you know, if, we, if we allow territories to secede, break away, declare independence, whatever you want to call it, 
where does it end, right? That's that's also the kind of that's why I mean the international legal system is very very much more of inviolability of uh, borders, and they should not be changed or in very exceptional circumstances. And then I guess that's I mean that's where the international system is coming from, and that's why there is really no discussion of redrawing the borders as such or or changing how um, states are even governed, right? Perhaps the the idea of a, a solid um, uh, single authority can no longer exist, or even devolved authorities can even exist. You know, perhaps you move towards a more of a federalist model. Perhaps Belgium is our future. It, it brings up a lot of questions of more yeah, local governance and representation of these identities and these uh, diverging interests as well. And ultimately looking at the repercussions of successionism is the same as what we've discussed earlier today in that it may solve some immediate concerns, but at the end of the day, there is so much to be thought through as well. So even the debate surrounding a United Ireland or not, or what that will mean, even when it comes to things of flags and anthems and schools and languages used on signposts, these are all potentially menial to some observing from the outside, but for those, you know, living in these areas, it's it's really important. And I think going forward, throwing these under the rug is very dangerous in that it's it's really more crucial than ever to recognize both sides have their own sense of identity and what is important for them can't be compromised at the the sake of a behest of yeah international convenience exactly. uh, I, I think what we are seeing in our discussion now is this question of this everyday impact ultimately regardless of what international law says what these agreements say about where a border should be or what the taxation rates should be, etc. How does it impact on a daily basis? If there is a physical border, which is very visible, I mean that will inherently affect individuals drastically. Even the fact that I mean, maybe now you need to to I don't know to go your, to your grocery store. You need to cross an international border, which is may seem absurd that. You have to do this after, again, so long of not seeing a border, of being so free to move across the, the these borders. Although, to be honest, I wouldn't want to go to Ireland for cheaper groceries. Well, that's what a lot of people do. They drive up to the north to get to their north, cheaper pasta or day-to-day yeah. <laughs> -day things. So. Yeah, you get absolutely um, you get, uh, ransacked if you go to the Republic, of course. <laughs> as I'm sure you know now, Ramesh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I think when it comes to, you know, thinking through all of these issues and the idea that Ramesh says about everyday life is at the end of the day the most important thing. And I think in the whole debate surrounding Northern Ireland and Brexit, the most troubling aspect is this seems to be kind of at the back of the debate and of the political rhetoric we see. It's kind of subsumed by divisive debates about how it will play out rather than really thinking about how it will impact the people that are living there and how it also resurfaces all of these 
troubles that have been brewing, but, you know, are maintained under the surface through a lot of hard work and effort on both sides of the community. So I think going forward, it really needs a careful manoeuvring, which hasn't been so carefully steered in recent years. And I think it's it's this that's needed aside from these debates as to what will happen and getting caught up in this divisive sectarian conflict. Yeah, and bringing in those voices as well where it is possible to, right? Bring in the stakeholders to um, discuss how that would impact exactly. their lives. Exactly. Yeah, to get right down to the micro. Okay, I think that brings us to a close um, more broadly on the discussion. And um, we've had a lot of issues touched upon um, here today. Um, if you'd like any closing words, uh, let's start with you, Amesh. Anything you'd like to sum up? Yeah, I think what I hope that our listeners have got out of this is just to start thinking of the multitude of different issues that surround with maybe on the surface seemingly a very legalistic solution or a way of doing things, but rather there are a lot of other issues that, of course, relate to identity, economics, I mean, buying your groceries. So in that sense... To just for you to start thinking, and I hope we have started that debate and discussion on how these things of sudden changing in judicial status affects everyone uh, on a daily basis. And that's something that we need to be aware of. And maybe we've forgotten because in Western Europe, we've lived in this kind of fixed state for the last 30 plus years. Comfortable, comfortable bubble. bubble yeah. that we've forgotten what it is like to live in this uncertainty or liminal zones as such. So yeah, that's, I guess, my two cents. Thank you very much. So we want to wrap up everything discussed today. (laughs) (laughs) So hopefully after this very enlightening discussion with Jake and Ramesh, we're able to wrap up a few of the main points discussed. And Ramesh and I, although we're both studying for our PhDs, are on very different topics. So we've managed to find overlap in this discussion on borders and identity and citizenship. And hopefully you've also taken away that in looking at this case study, which I'm more familiar with, which is Northern Ireland, that dealing with its fate in a post-Brexit era is a complicated one. It's one that has taken years of negotiation already. And even at that, negotiations have not solved all the issues. So there is still delays to the protocol being fully implemented because there is this issue of where a border should go and what are the implications of where that border lands. So whether it be in the sea, it's still going to anger one part of the community that sees this as a way of weakening the wider union. And for another part, it might see it as an opportunity for strengthening a union elsewhere. So I think in taking home what we should see and how we should see this unfold, it's a very careful handling and it's one that shouldn't be rushed or seen as an overnight solution. So if a similar fallout to a Brexit is to happen elsewhere, we should think long and hard before and understand the complexity that goes with it. Yeah, and who's involved in this, what interests they have um, and how their lives will be affected by this and therefore what are the repercussions. 
Yeah, that's a great sum up, Jen. Thank you. And thank you, Ramesh, thank as well. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you for having us, Jake. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, as always. <laughs> All right, that was the um, third episode of the um, Lighter Security and Global Affairs uh, podcast. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on uh, Spotify um, and other major podcasting platforms. Or, of course, you can um, pay a visit to um, our blog. Um, we will link um, Jen's most recent contribution there. Um, but just in case you're not aware and you can't be bothered to scroll down, that's okay. Um, please go to LeidenSecurityAndGlobalAffairs.nl uh, to check out more.